Introducing ADT Self Setup, featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest Cams. It can be easily installed at your convenience and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. At this point, more than 1,100 people from across the country have been charged in cases related to the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. The charges range from conspiracy to breaking and entering to assaulting an officer. Finding all those people has meant sorting through hours of images, from security footage to selfies. And while Hollywood has trained us to believe that the FBI has tech capabilities bordering on wizardry, that's not exactly the case. Maybe you think of people even sort of swiping in the air and moving magical boards. Full minority report. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the joke that I sort of make is like, don't think CSI, think the office. Because uh, I think that that's more the level of tech that we're sort of dealing with there. Ryan Riley is a reporter on the Justice Beat. He follows the work of FBI investigators. But these days, he also follows the work of a new class of investigators. Regular people whose work started online. There was this photo, and what's funny about it now is that no one knows the origin of it, but it became this sort of thing that they all organized around because it was this awful photo of a cop being dragged face down down the stairs of the Capitol. And uh, one Twitter user just said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find these people. And they ended up finding a lot of people who were at the Capitol that day. So much so that they've earned the nickname the Sedition Hunters. So much so that a handful of them have ended up working with the FBI. So how did this happen? How did people from around the country at kitchen tables, in garages, with laptops and smartphones, end up online sleuths? How did they identify and verify the identities of hundreds of people? How did they find the digital needles in the internet's data haystacks? I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. The January 6th insurrection is a turning point because prior to this, law enforcement agencies had been kind of skittish about digital vigilantes and crowdsourcing investigations. After all, it was the wisdom of Reddit crowds that wrongly accused a missing student of being a suspect in the Boston Marathon bombings back in 2013. But a lot has changed since then. For instance... One of the police officers involved in the manhunt for those suspects, Joseph Fisher, was arrested earlier this year after he turned up in video of the attack on the Capitol. In the video, he's hiding behind, around the corner, waiting until this Capitol police officer runs down who is trying to pursue another rioter and sort of throws this chair into the individual. He's also wearing, which was one of those confirming things, a Boston sports theme hat with, I think, all of the four main teams. Um, I'm from Boston, it. so I can say that's an extremely Boston thing it's to do. Extremely like, Boston God forbid you leave the house without a sports <laughs> memorabilia item yes. identifying you and your fandom. And that really narrows it down because if you wear something like that is, okay, if you have a facial recognition hit, sure, there's a possibility that that's another person, although facial recognition, uh, at least in terms of, uh, you know, is, is, getting, is improving over the years. But if you have confirming information like that and someone is wearing a hat that identifies the area they're from, it makes it a little bit easier to sew that up and confirm it. 
And these days, you can confirm that with your own facial recognition software at home. I know. Yeah, really super useful. <laughs> it finds a lot of these images. Yeah, so that's sort so of what So do you was... feed an image into it and say... You could do it with you right now. I figured it out. <laughs> Just... <laughs> I'm scared. I'm actually scared of that. And where does it get its information? Every, like it essentially scrapes the internet for photos and then you put in a photo of yourself and then it shows you all of these other photos from online where it, where it has found you. And that is what the so-called sedition hunters have been using for the last two years, swapping notes about what they find first in shared spreadsheets, then in discords and telegram groups. And at one point, one of them even designed his own app for information sharing. In his book, Sedition Hunters, author Ryan Riley says that is what made this case different. This investigation is about video. That's the number one priority for SLUs is getting that video, getting those photos, getting that raw material because you never know what photo will just break a case wide open, what angle someone hit um, that will you know, turn up a facial recognition hit. Maybe there's an assault that wasn't documented or wasn't found that someone who was charged with a misdemeanor committed and then all of a sudden this has now turned into a felony. There was one instance where someone was really covered up. The sleuths were really trying to go after them. And the thing that broke it open was is that he opened his phone. And in one video someone taking a, that someone behind him took, he opens up his phone and lo and behold, on his lock screen is the name of his LLC, his company that he owns. And that's sort of all it took. That was the straw so that someone broke the else's image back. of Correct. the front of this person's phone, phone led to their identification Correct. in an investigation. Yeah, there have also been some of the best screen. There was another instance where someone was taking a video and someone was pretty covered up, but then they were taking a selfie of themselves and looking in the screen, They that other phone behind them picked up that and got a really good face shot of them on the screen. So it's really... You never know what is going to be the thing that breaks everything wide open or what confirms something. You know, items of clothing are huge. So any detailed photos that you can get because it could be a freckle on your face. It could be a tattoo. It could be whether your earlobes are attached or not attached. That is— Wait, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. That's something that the sedition hunters looked for? They look very carefully at that. And that was one of the biggest FBI screw-ups that we saw. There was a, a woman in Alaska who had her door knocked in by the FBI— because she was at the Capitol on January 6th. There's no evidence that she went in. Her and her husband were at the Capitol on the grounds, uh, but they mistook her for a woman who helped steal Nancy Pelosi's laptop. So imagine you just went to the Capitol and were outside, and sure, it was a little raucous, uh, and you probably shouldn't have been on the restricted grounds, and then one day your door gets bashed in by the FBI asking about Nancy Pelosi's laptop, and you're like, what the hell are they talking about? Um, and after that identification happened, and because there was media, after that raid happened, and because there was media coverage, the sleuths were like, what's happening here, and decided to focus on it, and it took them a half hour to identify the actual suspect, and they used facial recognition, and they found an image of the woman who they were really looking for from a, a hospital that she was affiliated with and then found her name from that and then went to town and then found out, oh, actually that young man that she's with is her son and here are photos of her on Facebook with her son over the course of 10 years. Oh, and she's wearing a thumb ring in some of these photos on, uh, on Facebook. Oh, and she has earrings and then, oh, lo and behold, 
in the Capitol. She's wearing those earrings. She's wearing that thumb ring. And she has a facial recognition check. And if the FBI had just looked at the earlobes of the Alaska woman and then looked at the earlobes of this New York woman, they would have ruled it out immediately. Okay. Now, this is where I can tell you've spent too much time with your sources because this earlobe thing is actually pretty weird. Like, (laughs) the number of steps that you described between, hey, who is that woman? Right involved a journey down social media, her kid, her jewelry, then comes back around to her body, and then the ears. Yes. Like... But the ears it's is, a lot. It's These a people lot. are weird. Like this is <laughs> no, and I'm saying that in a in a generous way. Yeah. Like this is a level of intensity yeah. that it's really hard to process. It's a very, I think, post smartphone, post you know, yeah. like everybody videoing everything. Yeah phenomenon that the average person yeah. can be involved in that kind of sleuthing. Right. The earlobe thing is the thing that they sort of focus on with this individual case because they just think, why didn't the FBI look at the earlobes is the easiest way because if— Don't you think that's a weird question to ask? It is weird, but It's perfect for this age of social media where people are always looking for something, right? Like the most ridiculous tabloid videos are scrutinized like Zapruder film. Yeah. So it actually kind of makes sense to me that in this environment, that's the length— people go. Yeah. What was remarkable to me about that as well is that it really just, I mean, witness identification has always sort of been an issue that we know in the criminal justice system, especially along lines of race where people misidentify people who are um, of a different race very commonly. In this case, the FBI got someone who knew this Alaska woman to say, oh, that is a photo of her inside the Capitol. I know that person. It is not that person. And if they had just run a facial recognition check, as the slews do all the time, the computer would have spit that out and said, no, that's no good. So I think that the combined, you really have to combine these two things, both the tech and those witnesses. Because sure, it's great to have someone identifying someone, but does a computer say this is a facial rec match? And is there something outside of the computer that can confirm that? And if you bring that together, you bring together these sort of classic investigative skills and looking at, you know, items of clothing and things of that nature, where they were at the time, maybe checking if they checked into a hotel uh, in in D.C. or if they posted anything about being in D.C. around that time, if you can place them there through sort of these classic sort of more detective skills and then also have the real tech backup, that's what really is breaking a lot of these cases. What is the relationship between these online sleuths and the FBI, or more specifically, the federal prosecutors? It's evolved over time. Um, Some of these individuals now are confidential human sources for the FBI. Um, Formally. formally. They, like, brought them in. Signs of paperwork. Here's the deal. You're on the books. Here's what you can't do. Here's what you you can do. Here's what you can't do. Um, And is that unusual? Because a confidential human source, you think of that as somebody who is, like— I don't know, undercover or, you know, ensconcing themselves with a community and then revealing things to the FBI. These are people who are, like, still at home on their computers. Right. Or, yeah, working in some sort of undercover capacity or infiltrated. They're not undercover. They're looking at open source material, stuff on the—they're scraping the Internet for information. It is a little bit odd. That's not traditionally how— the FBI has approached these these matters. It's not unheard of that they had used sort of open skilled or open source skilled people before. I've seen cases, uh, a couple of cases where 
January 6 cases where it turned out that someone who got open source information had previously done something for the FBI. Um, but I think it's a real instance where the FBI need it shows sort of this this gap at the FBI where they really do need to catch up on the open source world and the ways of confirming it because so much of this unfolds online now and it's this really huge, I think, um, issue for the FBI that they're not really up to speed with with what's happening or really disconnected from what's happening online. Over the course of this conversation, you've not said anyone's real name. It's a skill. You have to continue to remember that. I'm like always thinking, you know, no slippage. <laughs> but but why? Like, why aren't they wanting to be public? Like, yeah. is there something about that and the fact that they're working with the FBI. Some of them are, right? I think that there's also – there are also sort of routes that this goes through where someone someone's information has gotten to the FBI, but maybe they're not one-on-one really dealing with the FBI. I mentioned early on in the book that there's someone, one of these – someone who is a confidential human source who's sort of at the center of this and sort of routing this information that is coming from the sleuths through this one pipe hole because they've got this pre-established relationship with the FBI. Because in the early days, they were sort of just dumping this in the FBI tip line. Yeah, I was about to say, if anyone has ever tried to call the FBI, it is impossible. Like just figuring out who to call, for what reason, what department, like it's craziness. And they purposely don't have a lot of the information online. Even in a lot of these affidavits now, they're trying not to name agents. They're redacting that information. So trying to figure out who's in charge of what is actually kind of difficult on the FBI side. And everything just sort of goes into this general tip line and then who knows what happens to it. So there's been a lot of instances where the sleuths will have found something down the line and identified someone, tell the FBI about it, hey, we identified this person. And then lo and behold, in that initial database of hundreds of thousands of tips that rolled into the FBI, someone who actually knew that person had had named them. And they'll base the criminal charges off of that initial identification and then sort of work it back from there. So a lot of these things are just sitting in an FBI database somewhere that have never been followed up on. What is the what is the most unusual length someone has gone to find a January 6th writer? <laughs> most unusual lengths would probably be an instance where um, there were a lot of facial recognition hits for an individual who assaulted a cop. Um, and this has happened multiple times that someone who previously was in pornographic videos ended up assaulting an officer on January 6th. I'm sorry, what? So, I'm help me out. So, <laughs> we've actually talked on this show about the blurring lines between regular people, air yep. quotes, and like people who yeah, get involved in pornographic work right. online. There's more of them. <laughs> yes. And you're saying there are such people who surfaced in January 6th? Yes. Yes, multiple people in fact who assaulted law enforcement officers who were specifically um, in in gay pornography uh, before they assaulted law enforcement officers uh, that day. So there's um, a video of them in the world. There's video of them in the world. And there was a facial recognition hit that then turned up all of these images. And it is something you have to be a little bit cautious of because often, and this has happened in, in many instances, it's not – you know, there's a lot of porn online, right? That's not shocking anyone. And often facial recognition – on the lower end of the matches, maybe the ones that aren't as firm, maybe that are, you know, the percentage at least of of that the they are sure about it is not very high, often surfaces images of people who maybe vaguely look like someone uh, who is uh, in pornography. Um, but in this instance, it really was someone who had been in pornography. So this individual 
um, who I identify as Josh, really just spent a lot of time doing something that he doesn't normally do in his real life, which is, uh, which is you know, as a, as a married uh, man with, with, a, with a child um, who is heterosexual, looking at a lot of, um, a lot of gay pornography. In the hopes of seeing the face of the person. He knew it was the face. It was more figuring out who this person really was. I see. So they knew this, okay, this person is in these, this person previously did pornography, but now I need a real identity to associate with that person because they probably had some sort of name that they were working under in pornography that was not their actual name. So that's basically what he ended up going down and ended up searching, you know, just image images of the of this person's face that were surfacing on numerous websites and I then eventually got an identification. That's a lot. It's a lot. We'll be back with more in a moment. Hey, I know life is busy. When your day is whipping by at 100 miles an hour, it can be tough to keep up with the news. Well, CNN Five Things is here to help. CNN Five Things is a podcast that boils down five important headlines in five minutes or less, while still providing crucial context and reporting from CNN's world-class journalists. Listen to CNN Five Things wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking to Ryan Riley, author of Sedition Hunters, How January 6th Broke the Justice System. And we're in the middle of talking about these digital vigilantes who are actually contributing to FBI investigations into the Capitol rioters. You know, there's some irony here in that January 6th was um, the result of a community that, like, sort of grew— fomented in its emotion online, yeah. right? It was like a swirl of online activity and offline that led up to January 6th for people to storm the Capitol. People in yeah. their own social interactions of sorts, like in their own clubs, in their own Trump for fill in the blank. Mm. And I feel like there's something um, ironic about it being people online, right, yeah. who went after them. Yeah. It's, it's like all the same organizing mechanisms right. It's for a different purpose. It's the cause of and solution to the problem at the same time. Uh, yeah, it is, it is very strange. And I think that I wish that overall the American public had as much skill in differentiating between what's real and what's fake as the sleuths did because they're very good at sort of figuring out, okay, let's make sure that this is actually true. Let's not go down a rabbit hole here. And they're challenging their own premises. So if someone identifies somebody, there are a number of people who are going to check that and look at it and and look through the facts and analyze what's available and see if this is a real thing. Because they really don't want the to person. discredit their movement as well, right? Like right. you identify someone incorrectly and it, the whole project starts to sort of fall apart in yeah. terms of its credibility. And they have a really great, I mean, they have a perfect batting average with the cases that they're turning into the FBI. So what do you mean? They really want to, they have not identified anyone who was not the right person. Uh, whereas the FBI has knocked out a door of, because they didn't check somebody and has arrested other people who, you know, are, who they thought were someone else. 
I have tended to think of this kind of online sleuthing, or sometimes people call it doxing, right? Um, scraping data from online to identify a person and make their information public as a bad thing, because I've always learned about it in the context of like hacker groups like Anonymous or the Gamergate debacle, and there was sort of like people going after women online. And I'm I'm wondering how you've come to think about this online sleuthing, because it's like a little scary what people can find and then what they can do with that information. Totally. It makes you very conscious or, where, you know, it makes you very worried about the information that you have out there in the world. And you know, I, they've done facial recognition checks on me, and it's found a bunch of photos of me that I've never seen before. And it's, sometimes it's one that half of my face is covered, and I'm in the back of a scrum on Capitol Hill questioning a politician with my phone or with my recorder out. Um, it really is remarkable, the facial recognition, what it can pick up. I think there's a difference between what the slews are doing, and I think that, you know, doxing, we sometimes use that term a little bit too broadly than what it really means. Because when I think of doxing, I think of you're trying to get someone harassed. You're trying to put their information out to the public um, and causing someone to have that have an impact on their life. You want you want that harassment. You want them to feel scared. Um, and in this instance, that's not really what we're talking about here. In fact, one of the the first tips I got, the worry was is that they didn't want people aggressively attacking this person. They just wanted to build this this case. Uh, they didn't want to have this woman targeted and have her harassed and have her family harassed. But they were trying to figure out a way to get the slew's attention off of this one person because she had already been identified. But they didn't want to necessarily name her publicly, even though that would sort of get everybody to move on to the next target. Um, so there's, I think it's you know really about the ethics of what people are bringing to the table here. If your purpose is to get people harassed and to you know summon Just public an, humiliation or summon an online mob towards someone, yeah, then that's obviously bad. I think in terms of just looking at public information on the internet and confirming what is available and identifying someone who committed a crime, that's in a different... And then going through the proper channels and bringing that to the authorities' attention, it's a much different choice than just sort of saying, hey, harass this person, make their lives miserable. Do you think that um, this, for lack of a better term, kind of collaboration, right, between just people at home who decided they're going to investigate and the actual investigation... Has that affected how the public understands the investigation or is this like still really unknown, the extent that they're helping? I think I think it's kind of largely unknown, um, but I do think that there is this thing that the FBI is benefiting from that they don't really mind right now that everyone's sort of overestimating the FBI's capabilities, which has really put a tamper on some of the potential violence that we might have seen, you know, say when Donald Trump is indicted for the fourth time or when he – one of these events that could be a cause of, of violence or attacks, everyone's sort of running scared that they the think feds they'll be, are infiltrated. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah. everyone's a fed and they sort of think this. And it's really disturbing on the one hand because you have members of Congress who are feeding this narrative that is just nonsense about this idea that the F, this was all an FBI setup. And, you know, setting aside – whether or not you think the FBI is truly that evil, I think the competency question really comes to the forefront here in terms of, no, they couldn't have pulled off this perfect crime and set everything up and pulled all of these strings yeah. without leaving any any trail. But now there's the situation where everyone is sort of – where the FBI is sort of benefiting off of that because it's sort of – had this chilling effect almost. Is this having any kind of deterrence on its own? 
meaning for the people who are in the world of um, defending the January 6th rioters, right, or feeling like that they're victims somehow, um, is there a sense that, like, yeah, you can't run out, outrun the Internet? I think they are definitely worried about being found and based on how much information the sleuths have been able to turn up. And there's definitely this this idea that they overestimate the capabilities of the FBI overall, and that's had sort of a beneficial impact almost in terms of a chilling effect on a lot of these protests that we would have seen after Donald Trump got indicted, for example. We didn't see that same sort of political violence uh, that we would because people are really worried about organizing online. They're worried about the sleuths are watching this. They're worried about the FBI is watching this. And now they think everything is a federal setup in the same way that they believe this conspiracy theory that January 6th is a federal setup. So that almost becomes this sort of impact on its own, um, how that impacts, how that trickles down to the community and organizing new events. They're very worried that, oh, everyone's a Fed, everyone is going to be here. I want to talk about the coming months. At this point, how many prosecutions have there been? Uh, The total number of people who have been arrested is over 1,100, but the total scope of people who could be arrested is north of 3,000. And just realistically, they're never going to get to that number given the statute of limitations expires. Statute of limitations on what particular law? Any of the crimes really committed at the Capitol on January 6th uh, are under a five-year statute of limitations. That's sort of the federal standard. There are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's what's going to apply to January 6th, meaning that no new prosecutions can be brought after January 6th of 2026. So really, we're just north of of two years we have left in this investigation. Um, and given the pace that we saw in the first year where there are a lot more arrests that has really slowed slowed down now, we're just not on track to get anywhere near that number, I think. How do the sleuths feel about that? Frustrated. What happens next for the sedition hunters? Like you're saying there's this statute of limitations. Are they sort of working furiously ahead of that? Is there some next step to their work? I think the public pressure is is going to be a big part of this because we sort of saw that even after the first year where this was about following up and making sure that this case was being pursued and sort of being a little bit of a pain to the FBI and saying, what's up with this case? What's up with this case? Assisting these ongoing investigations is huge. Uh, In the Proud Boys trial, which was this huge uh, seditious conspiracy case, there was actually a last-minute surprise that the FBI had missed and the sleuths turned up that showed one of the defendants assaulting law enforcement officers with pepper spray. And that was right after he testified, I didn't assault anyone that day. And he actually wasn't even charged with assaulting anyone that day because the government was unaware of that and they resurfaced it. So we're going to see example after example of that where the sleuths are bringing new information to the bureau. Um, And then I think it is really about prioritization and figuring out which cases they really want to get in before, you know, sort of the clock strikes midnight and and this is all over because they really do need the FBI uh, to step it up on these cases. In the end, does this feel like a very pivotal moment in terms of us, meaning regular people, getting involved in the work of investigations, right? Or like kind of policing each other? Yeah, To a certain extent, I would say we've kind of been doing that for a while in in various forums because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that people get policed or, you know, canceled over that isn't a criminal offense and held accountable in some way. Um, 
And I think there's a little bit of that to it. You know, if we get past this point where these January 6 cases are no longer chargeable, we're going to have some people held accountable in other ways uh, for their actions on January 6. And that typically means naming and shaming, if you want to sort of describe it uh, that way. And because a lot of the impact that people have had isn't really what happens in the courtroom. It's what happens to their lives. Ryan Riley is a reporter for NBC News. He's also the author of Sedition Hunters, How January 6th Broke the Justice System. That's it for this episode of The Assignment, a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Lori Gallaretta. Our producers include Jennifer Lai, Carla Javier, and Dan Bloom. Our associate producer is Isoke Samuel. The senior producer of our show is Matt Martinez. Michael Hammond did the mixing and sound design. Dan DeZula is our technical director. And the executive producer of CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks to Katie Hinman, and of course, to you for listening. I'm Audie Cornish. ADT professionally installs Google Nest products, helping to make your home safe and smart. You can check in on your home and manage your security system from virtually anywhere. And with Nest Cams and Nest Doorbell, you get intelligent alerts on what matters most. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP.